1: You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, a digital editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, we investigate the curious case of the missing worker. This is not just an American problem. There's growing evidence that
2: worker shortages are a problem and a growing problem across the rich world.
1: Is it time for a new global system to tax big companies?
3: It could be the most important overhaul of the international tax architecture in a a century.
1: And Patrick Collison, co-founder and CEO of Stripe, on why
4: the rise of fintechs is good news for the banks. Whether it's in lending or new ways to hold balances, there's a lot of different ways in which you can take these capabilities that have been refined by banks and make them newly accessible.
1: But first, here's a puzzle. Millions of people are out of work at the same time as businesses are struggling to fill vacancies. It's a particular problem in the United States, where unemployment remains high. But labour shortages are also a challenge across the West. That's good for employees, maybe, if wages have to rise to attract applicants, but perhaps not so good for inflation, nor for people who remain unemployed, nor for businesses on tight margins, many of which now find themselves asking, where has everybody gone? It's an extraordinary
2: situation in America, which is the world's largest economy. The ratio of unfilled vacancies to employment, which is a pretty decent measure of labour shortages, has never been so high. Callum Williams is The Economist's senior economics writer. But the thing is, is that although there's been a lot of press about the US this is not just an American problem. There's growing evidence that worker shortages are a problem and a growing problem across the rich world as a whole. So for instance, if you look at the UK, which has just reopened indoor dining on the 17th of May, pub landlords and restaurant owners are complaining that it's very hard to find people to, to pull pints. And if you look at Australia, which is a few months ahead of most of the world in terms of its post-pandemic future, unfilled vacancies are 40% higher than they were before the pandemic. And even in Europe, which has been sort of slower to to loosen lockdown measures, they're 20% higher. And all this is coming as a large number of people,
1: millions of people, remain out of work. So why is there this seeming contradiction? Plenty of people without work, yet employers struggling to fill vacancies. Has this taken employers and economists by surprise? It has taken economists by surprise. For the jobs
2: report, the US jobs report, which came out a couple of weeks ago, the consensus had had been that the US economy would add about a million jobs in April. In reality, it added about a quarter of that. And of course, the concern is that with so many millions of people still out of work, that these people might be sort of structurally excluded from the labour market and might be unable to find work in the future. So some people think this is a good thing because obviously some firms will need to raise wages to attract staff and who could begrudge anyone a pay rise the problem there of course is you have to think i think more widely and think of the millions of people who are still out of work and think about why they're not able to get a job and then of course the health of businesses also matters a lot of these firms it's say in in social care or in hospitality leisure are sort of unable to raise wages to attract more staff, either because they've had a very lean period over the past year, or because they are in a, an industry that has, you know, structurally low margins. So the way to think about labour shortages really is to think of it as a tremendous
1: waste of, of human talent. Okay, but let's look at the effect on, on wages a bit more. Is there evidence yet that wages are being driven up?
2: Most people would agree that wage growth is surprisingly strong given that the economy is still quite weak. And when the economy is weak, historically, that's tended to go hand in hand with very weak wage growth. But that isn't what we're seeing. If you look at particular companies, you are seeing now that companies are starting to raise wages, particularly in sectors like food service and that sort of thing. So McDonald's is, the, is one of the kind of biggest examples that people are talking about in the US
1: at the moment. That presumably is good for people who are in work or who are finding work but you mentioned that there were some downsides to this sure so i mean one downside
2: is that in some circumstances labor shortages have a kind of ricochet effect across the rest of the economy so for instance if you're a building firm and you're, you you can't find enough builders to meet demand then that means that your demand in turn for you know building supplies and for redecorators and and all that other stuff down the supply chain will constrict as well there's another concern at the moment which is that inflation is rising and will you know force central banks to, to raise interest rates and, and put the economic recovery on hold, it is conceivable that a sort of battle between employers could end up stoking inflation. There isn't a huge amount of evidence of that happening yet, but it is something to, to think about. That said, I think there are costs that labour shortages are imposing right now, which are worse than any of the things I've just mentioned. And that's really the, the human cost. It's bad for household incomes, bad for people's health. I think a lot of people would argue that it's not great for people's dignity to be out of work for a long time, especially if they want it. And the best evidence we've come up with suggests that about 30 million people in the rich world
1: are out of work who were in work before the pandemic. Is there anything that policymakers can do about this? For example, some pundits have said that stimulus handouts have given people an excuse not to take a job. Do you think that those should be unwound? What do you think could be done?
2: The debate about Welfare and its relationship with the labor market is very polarized, particularly in the U.S., where a lot of people will insist that the more generous unemployment insurance benefits are giving people an excuse not to look for work. On the other hand, there is surprisingly little evidence that that is taking place. So there's there's huge disagreement about that. My sense is the way to think about it is is not to prioritize cutting welfare benefits. Because, you know, the economy is still weak and people's incomes have in many cases fallen quite drastically, but rather than that is to sort of reorient them and to redesign them in such a way as to place more emphasis on getting people back into work. So that kind of comes under the active labor market policy umbrella. People are now starting to experiment with this. So for instance, in Arizona, they're basically using the federal money that they get to fund unemployment insurance payouts and actually redirecting it towards a bonus that people who were unemployed, who then find a job, can get, and they can get up to $2,000 if they find a full-time job, and it's targeted at people on lower income. So it's a, it's a pretty progressive policy. Callum, the pandemic's really crushed international travel. What impact has that had? It could be having a massive effect. One of the weird things about the pandemic is how it has normalised the idea that you need to have extremely strict border control. And the countries which or until the pandemic, were considered to be quite open and and liberal places, they've gone in completely the opposite direction. So for instance, New Zealand is one example, which had pretty high net inward migration of around 100,000 people before the pandemic. And that's fallen to 7,000 people. Australia now is actually losing migrants on a net basis. People are actually leaving. But it's also a problem in places like the UK, which of course has this added complication of having a Brexited you know, it's all very well to have these ultra strict border controls, if you're concerned about uh, variants or whatever it might be. But that is coming at an enormous cost. And I think governments need to be more open and upfront about those costs than most of them have been so far.
1: There are an awful lot of things to try and keep hold of here, aren't there? For one thing, we don't know whether the change in people's behaviour that we've seen over the past year or so will be permanent or temporary. The sort of policy response is that, we've been talking about whether to welfare or to immigration would take time to work out and on top of all that we don't know how long the pandemic is is going to last and it presumably will will last different lengths in different places
2: and of course across the world vaccines continue to be rolled out and as that happens i think more and more people will start to feel comfortable about moving into public space and and taking jobs that maybe today they they feel uncomfortable about taking so i think the way to think about this labor shortages question is that it's a combination of both policy changes and patience, which is required.
1: Callum Williams, thank you very much. Thanks, Patrick. And for more analysis like this of the biggest trends and latest developments in business, finance and economics, and why they matter, try a subscription to The Economist. This week, you can read about the machinations behind the Warner Discovery mega merger and how it will shape the future of streaming. And a dispatch from Hong Kong as the Chinese authorities chip away at the influence of the territory's tycoons. For all that and more, subscribe at economist.com forward slash podcast offer. That link is also in the notes for this episode.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: Next, yesterday, May the 18th, America's Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, addressed the Chamber of Commerce, the country's biggest business lobby.
3: We are proposing to fundamentally reform the corporate tax
1: system that will help offset the cost of the proposed public investments. It's a clear message for America Inc. We believe the corporate sector can
3: contribute to this effort by bearing its fair share.
1: For years, politicians and the public have grumbled, simmered and raged as multinational companies have shifted profits out of the grasp of tax collectors and into low-tax havens. But the question of whom to tax, where and by how much is riddled with pitfalls. Over 40 countries are squabbling over digital services taxes, attempts to get Silicon Valley firms to cough up more in the places where they actually do business. And now the pandemic is forcing governments to find ways to plug their fiscal deficits. The system is reaching breaking point.
3: Today's system of taxing multinationals is very clearly dysfunctional. And it is high time there was an overhaul.
1: Samaya Keynes is our Europe economics editor.
3: Governments have been trying to revamp the international tax system for a few years now. But it it really does look like they might agree on something this summer. Uh, That's in a forum run by the OECD and and the G20. There are 139 countries in talks. It could be the most important overhaul of the international tax architecture in a a century.
1: Samaya, let's go back to the principles underlying corporate taxation. How should the system work in theory?
3: Essentially, the, the system is supposed to avoid taxing companies twice on the same activity. If you want to avoid taxing activity twice, then the question is, well, who gets to tax it once? Um, and, and back then, the powers that be decided to give taxing rights first to places where the profits were produced, so the source of the profits, and then to wherever the company was headquartered, so where, wherever the company was resident, now, you'll, you'll notice that there is one uh, factor that is absent from this. Where you make your sales as a company is irrelevant for that allocation. The other important feature of the current system is that legal affiliates, so you've got these multinationals with a bazillion different, different legal affiliates all over the world, those tend to be taxed separately.
1: Okay, that's very clear on the theory. How's it working out in practice?
3: Well, uh, with the rise of an enormously complex multinational companies and their very canny tax advisors, this has all become a bit of a mess. I spoke to Gabriel Zuckman, an economist at the University of California, Berkeley, who, who specialises in unpicking this, this tangled web.
5: It's very easy today for big companies to produce stuff in the US, in Germany, in China, and then at the end of the day to pretend that their profits have been made in Ireland or in Bermuda, where the corporate tax rate is 0%. According to the estimates that that we have with my colleagues Thomas Torslov and Ludwig Wehr, close to 40% of multinational profits are shifted to tax havens each year. Close to $700 billion each year ends up being booked and taxed at very low rates in tax havens.
1: So how do $700 billion of profits get shifted around?
3: There are a few different methods. Now, one big one is through manipulating transfer pricing, or those, those transactions between the affiliates. Here's Professor Zuckman again.
5: So for instance, when you know, Apple Ireland exports iPhones to Apple Germany... In principle, Apple needs to charge the actual price of, of the iPhone for this intra group transaction. The problem is that because the tax rate is way lower in Ireland than in Germany, there is an incentive for Apple to charge a very high price for this transaction, to sell the iPhone at a very high price to Apple Germany. Why? Because you know that means the Irish subsidiary is going to make very large profits, taxed at a low rate, and the German subsidiary is not going to make much profits.
3: With these incentives then, in theory, multinationals could essentially shift profits away from high-tax jurisdictions to low-tax jurisdictions and lower their overall tax bill. Now, other ways companies can do that uh, include having affiliates in high-tax places borrow from affiliates in low-tax places. Um, Then the interest payments essentially lower the the tax bill in the high-tax place. Or they can shunt their intangible assets, like their intellectual property, to tax havens. Professor Zuckman said that this method was the most important one.
5: The most striking example is the case of, I think, uh, Google. In 2003 just a few months before being listed as a public company, Google moved uh, some of its most valuable intangible assets, some of its search and advertisement technology to its own affiliate in Bermuda. So Google Germany has to pay royalties to Google Bermuda, Google France has to pay royalties to Google Bermuda to have the right to use the Google technology. And these royalty payments, They, again, shift profits out of France, out of Germany. In 2019, Google Bermuda recorded almost $20 billion in revenue from all these royalty payments.
3: Just a footnote, which is that recently Google actually ended its uh, holdings of intellectual property in Bermuda and took them back to the US.
1: So what proposals are being considered to try and bring this loss of tax revenue under control?
3: Well, there are two components of, of the discussions right now. So first of all, they're discussing a minimum tax. And second of all, they're discussing a, a partial reallocation of taxing rights. So who gets to tax what? So just taking those in order. First of all, the minimum tax essentially does what it says on the tin. It puts a flaw on tax rates uh, and therefore blunts the incentive um, for companies to put their profits in, in tax havens. The second one is this reallocation. And so they're going to try to reallocate the right to tax profits based partly on where companies make their sales. Consumers are harder to move around. Now, this reallocation would apply only to the biggest and most profitable companies. Now, lots of those companies are American. I think overall, effectively, America would be handing over the right to tax, previously American tax profits, to other countries, And so there's a question of what they would get in return. And what they want is other countries withdrawing these so-called digital services taxes.
1: And do you think they're going to reach a deal?
3: It's possible. But there is still an enormous amount to be agreed. Um, essentially, all the negotiators are currently looking at these high-level proposals and waiting for some number crunching from the OECD to see what they're actually going to get. The Biden administration wants a minimum tax of 21%. Now, that, that is that is quite high, certainly higher than than has been discussed before. Given the objections of some of the tax havens, I think that a rate of, say, 10 to 15% is more realistic. You can imagine that this very, very quickly gets very, very weedsy. It's likely that they agree something that isn't particularly ambitious. But then if they, they do get to a deal, then they can expand it later. Now, Obviously, I would say bolder reform would be better. Uh, the current system is really not working very well, but a deal is is better than nothing,
1: right? But if if there is a deal, there will be those who will say that raising taxes is sure to reduce growth. It's sure to dampen innovation. It's sure to be a, a block on entrepreneurship. Isn't there something in that?
3: There is. There is clearly a point um, at which you could you can go too far. Um, I might actually put that to Professor Zuckman.
5: In 1985, the average statutory corporate income tax rate globally was 49%. Today, we're talking about a minimum tax of 21%. At that level, the negative effects on uh, investment, on growth, on, on innovation are likely to be quite small. Now, if we are talking about corporate taxes of 50% or 70%, this would become really serious issues to discuss. But today, that's that's really not the case.
3: And right now, whether or not governments agree on a minimum tax or a reallocation of taxing rights, there are definitely going to be changes. We're likely to see some kind of corporation tax reform in America. And if there's no deal at the OECD, then many more countries are going to move forward with their digital services taxes, these unilateral tax grabs. So whatever happens... Tax bills are going to rise.
1: Samaya Keynes, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And our thanks to Gabriel Zuckman of the University of California, Berkeley. And finally, just over a decade ago, Patrick and John Collison founded Stripe. It began by helping other Silicon Valley startups accept online payments. It has since outgrown them all. In March, the firm closed a fundraising round, valuing it at $95 billion – three times what it was worth just a year ago. Alongside companies like PayPal and Square, it has helped America overhaul its once pitiful record on digital payments. Stripe now operates in 43 countries, and its customers include the likes of Uber, Spotify, Flipkart, AXA and Zoom. And yet, most people are unaware they've ever even used Stripe's services. Our Wall Street correspondent, Alice Fulwood, interviewed Patrick Collison and asked him how America's biggest ever unlisted firm remains almost
4: invisible. Stripe is building infrastructure for the internet economy. And what we mean by that is that we're focused on helping companies move money around online to accept payments from their customers, to pay it out to drivers or to small businesses that they they support, and generally to implement internet business models. It might be surprising uh, that... Back 10 years ago when we started, this was actually a pretty difficult thing to do. Uh, Lots of the traditional financial services companies, they hadn't built APIs and kind of programmatic ways uh, to make it easy to orchestrate this money movement. And so the kind of broad theme of what we're doing is taking capabilities that have existed in the financial services ecosystem, in some cases for a long time, and trying to figure out what's the internet native programmable way to expose these capabilities to a whole host of actors that didn't previously have easy access to them.
6: Right. And anyone who's working in or near financial services at the moment will be hearing the term API a lot. But for the novices among us, what is an API?
4: Sure. So an API, it stands for an application programming interface, the language that two pieces of software use to talk together. You might want to build an application on an iPhone and the API is what you use to talk to the iPhone and to implement your, your application. We make it easy for other developers, other companies to write software that causes money to move in the real world.
6: What does it mean for you to be exposing the capabilities of banks? If the banks already do all of these things, why do they need Stripe to make it happen?
4: Well, the most basic thing is banks, of course, issue debit cards and credit cards, and we're making it possible for those cards that they issue to be accepted by online businesses. But the the thing we've been working on over the last couple of years that, that I'm pretty excited by is trying to figure out how to expose some of the core capabilities at the heart of their business. And so we announced a product last year called Stripe Treasury, uh, and we do that in partnership with a number of banks, including uh, City and Barclays. We're enabling them to offer easy bank account setup through various other platforms. And so, for example, Shopify has announced that they're going to enable Shopify store owners to kind of hold a balance with Shopify. Another example that I think really illustrates this is uh, there's a platform called Jobber. It's a, a platform for handymen, for service workers of, uh, of various sorts. And we're working to enable Jobber to offer easy loans for participants in their ecosystem. And so if you think about what has to work and uh, what has to be connected for that to happen, you need to have robust capital markets, you need to have banks that are capable of actually orchestrating the money movement, you need to have Stripe that, uh, that, that works with Jobber and kind of knits the, the whole thing together. You have this complete ecosystem of actors figuring out how to solve, you know, one of the most fundamental problems facing any SMB, which is access to capital. So uh, whether it's in lending or whether it's in new ways to hold balances or whether it's in you know, some of the more basic payments mechanics, there's a lot of different ways in which you can take these capabilities that have been refined by banks and make them newly accessible.
6: And, you know, your investors clearly think that this is all very lucrative, but how expensive is it to provide all of these services? And in what way are you competing down the cost of the provision of these services to businesses?
4: Stripe exists in a very competitive ecosystem. There are lots of different companies that are endeavouring to support the internet economy. The good news, though, is that the internet economy is obviously very large and it's growing very quickly. Uh, It's hugely complicated and expensive for Stripe to provide everything that it does. Uh, We have to build some of the world's most sophisticated anti-fraud systems. We have to figure out how to do tax calculation across all these different jurisdictions. We have to build integrations into central banks, into payment methods, into all sorts of different components of the financial ecosystem. If we'd known that it's as complicated as it is, we'd probably have had more pause in uh, in getting started. The thing that might be interesting and, and perhaps not obvious is, is kind of a structural shift that's happened over the past five years or so where, Five years ago, a lot of large uh, existing companies thought that it made sense to handle a lot of this stuff in-house, kind of like a lot of these companies had their own physical servers in actual data centers, whereas now they've realized that, well, it's much more capital efficient to rely on cloud infrastructure from Microsoft or from Amazon or from somebody like that. The same thing is starting to happen with regard to these internet-based B2B financial services, where... Rather than building it themselves, they're realizing that, well, it's not really sensible for us to build our own functionality in Brazil, our own functionality in Singapore. And so they're increasingly coming to Stripe and trying to figure out, well, how can we have one common global platform that enables us to scale at 10% of the cost?
6: It does echo some of the ways other payment platforms have scaled. So if you think of companies like Am Financial or Grab in Singapore... They grew from enabling payments into offering a huge range of financial services, sort of reverse engineering the product lines that banks offer. The narrative of the rise of fintechs is often framed as fintechs outcompeting the banks, but the way you describe Stripe's growth is quite different. Do you think that the narrative of big banks versus tech firms is mistaken?
4: I think the big difference between Stripe and some of those platforms is that we're kind of like financial systems uh, cartilage <laughs> And, you know, cartilage doesn't really, it's not very useful unless you have bones and muscles. And for us, banks are the bones and the muscles. Everyone always wants to make these things, you know, a horse race. Um, But I think it's so important to keep in mind the structurally positive sum nature of so many of these problems, and especially Stripe's strategy, you know, in particular. The banking sector overall has grown tremendously over the past 20 years, And my view is that it will continue to do so for the next couple of decades and that the internet should be a huge tailwind because ultimately a lot more financial services are going to be taking place. There are going to be more businesses, they're going to have more customers, and the world is going to be more globally integrated than ever before. And so we really don't see it that way. And I don't think it's how it's played out to date.
6: So if it's not competing with the banks, then what is the next frontier for Stripe?
4: Well, there's still a lot of countries that we don't support. We actually acquired a company called Paystack, uh, which is headquartered in Lagos uh, in Nigeria, back last year. They have really exciting ambitions to enable online commerce across more of the African continent. They actually just last week launched in South Africa. And so we're very excited about that. But we're working on Southeast Asia. We're working on Latin America. There's still a lot to do. And then there's there's a lot of minutiae that... You know, it's really, it's not sexy. It doesn't get a lot of attention, uh, but actually makes a really big difference for, for businesses that are selling online. And so something, you know, we, we worked a lot on last year is figuring out how to automatically enable local payment methods for businesses outside of the country in which the payment method is offered. Uh, if you take a business in Hong Kong, you know, it might have some customers in Netherlands, but the business in Hong Kong doesn't know anything about ideal which is the most common payment method used in Holland. And what we have found is that we're able to pretty reliably deliver 10%, 30%, 50% revenue increases in these countries by kind of properly localizing the experience. People know that you need to localize the language like the text, but they don't think as much uh, about localizing the actual underlying financial plumbing. You know, we think that could be a really effective way to grow internet GDP and to enable a lot of opportunity that isn't currently being tapped.
6: Patrick Collison, thank you very much.
4: Thanks
1: for having me. Our thanks to Patrick Collison and to Alice Fulwood. Thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The producers were Amika Shortino-Nolan and Paul Waters. The editor was Sandra Schmule. I'm Patrick Lane. And in London, this is The Economist.